This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, preparing for the long haul in Libya. In terms of how long it will take, it depends on how long it will take Gaddafi to realise that the people of Libya want a different future from the one he's offering. And the final countdown to the royal wedding. Everybody's really up for it and looking forward to it. Prince William is a serving officer in the armed forces. Our soldiers, sailors and airmen really identify with them. BFBS. Headlines. The firms building the Royal Navy's two new aircraft carriers say the cost has risen by at least a billion pounds, maybe two billion. That rise could push the final cost of HMS Queen Elizabeth and HMS Prince of Wales to around seven billion pounds. The original estimate was just over five billion. The funeral of a Royal Navy officer shot dead on a nuclear submarine is being held in Wigan. Lieutenant Commander Ian Molyneux died after the attack on board HMS Astute when it was docked at Southampton. The UN Security Council's failed to agree a statement condemning the killing of protesters in Syria. A draft text had been proposed by the UK, France, Germany and Portugal, but it couldn't be agreed. The Syrian ambassador, meanwhile, has had his invitation to tomorrow's royal wedding withdrawn, a decision that was made by the Foreign Office. There had been criticism Dr Sami Kiami was originally due to go, despite the protests. And retired senior members of the armed forces will be ushers at the royal wedding. The gentlemen ushers will help the dignitaries to find their seats in Westminster Abbey. We've reached a stalemate in the battle between pro- and anti-Gaddafi forces in Libya, according to America's most senior military officer. But the Defence Secretary disagrees with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Liam Fox has told a Commons committee, we're still making progress. And he said Britain has no intention of sending troops into Libya, insisting the small group of officers sent to Benghazi are not there to prepare the ground for a larger deployment. Our mentoring role is to ensure that uh, the opposition forces are able to organise themselves better, that their logistics are better, their communications are better, and we believe this is vital uh, to their stated role in their ability to help protect the civilian population better. So it is not, it is not a first step, nor is it intended to be. Dr Fox was giving evidence to the Commons Defence Select Committee. Earlier I spoke to one of its members, Labour MP Gisela Stewart. I think in terms of what he had to say as a defence secretary was to be firm, make it quite clear that we are in there for however long it takes, that we've got the means and the resources. Because as you reminded the committee at the beginning of the whole session, uh, it isn't just British parliamentarians who listen to this, it's also uh, people like Gaddafi. So we've got to be quite clear as to what we need to do. In terms of how long it will take, it depends on how long it will take Gaddafi to realise that the people of Libya... Uh, want a different future from the one he's offering. He also insisted that there's no stalemate, but the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs says that's exactly what's happening. Who's right? Well, it's always difficult to judge from a distance, but I get the impression that there's so much you can do with a no-fly zone. Uh, you, you then have to also rely on the, on the neighbours of, of Libya and what can be done on the ground. Uh, there are some teams, advisory teams, both from uh, us and other countries on the ground uh, to, to give that advice. So I think it's probably a bit of both. Uh, there, there may be less happening in there, but I think there needs to be more happening on the ground, and it's the, the Libyans themselves who have to do more. 
the Defence Secretary uh, slightly dodged the question as to whether or not we would have enough troops for boots on the ground in Libya, which he has uh, ruled as not happening. But do you think we have the necessary resources for ongoing operations in both Afghanistan and Libya? Well, you know, the the, the Libyan operation is framed and contained within a UN resolution, which makes it quite clear that within that resolution, uh, troops on the ground are not an option. Uh, One of the things I wish Liam Fox had given a commitment to is that the ongoing legal advice he's given by the Attorney General in terms of our operation. So I think we've got Afghanistan, which we're committed to troops on the ground. There's a framework there, and we're not committed to sending troops on the ground in Libya. And if there were such a change, I think it would require serious reconsideration, not just of what we're doing, but also in terms of other NATO partners stepping up to the plate. And if, as the Foreign Secretary says, though, we are committed for the long haul in Libya, do we have the resources necessary for what we're doing at the moment? Liam Fox was uh, quite adamant that, that the Libyan operation is within the envelope of the, the, the spending review. And when I invited him to actually reopen the spending review, uh, given the light of the, the extended commitment, uh, he was quite clear that the government wasn't doing that unless someone suggested what taxes he should raise or where else he should cut. Uh, and he seems to be confident that they can do it within the current budget and the commitment of using the emergency reserves from the Treasury. And do you think he's right not to reopen the defence review? Uh, I'm slightly cautious about this, uh, given that uh, the last time he appeared in front of us, uh, we suggested to him that he had been asked to save uh, one billion by the end of March. He's been given a reprieve from that, and and my reading is still it's in the light of the Libyan operations. Despite our invitation to actually say so, uh, Liam Fox didn't. Defence Committee is conducting an inquiry in that, and I wouldn't want to preempt our findings, but I personally find it increasingly difficult uh, to see how we can match our aspirations with the means we have. Gisela Stewart. Well, as ever, I'm joined by BSA's Defence Analyst Christopher Lee, and on the line is Fawaz Jerzez, Professor of Middle Eastern Policy at the London School of Economics. Hello to both of you. Professor Jerzez, is it stalemate in Libya? Uh, Yes, I think it is stalemate in the short term and medium term. I don't think the opposition has the capacity and the resources to basically change qualitatively the balance of power on the ground. And I think Qadhafi is deeply entrenched, in particular in the western parts. In the longer term, uh, I think Qadhafi is is very much unviable, in particular in light of the uh, added support that the opposition is getting in terms of training, military uh, skills and weapons. So uh, a year or so, it's a long time. And who knows how the war in in Libya will change in the meantime. Because, as you know, wars have changed. And once Libya slides into civil war, this will become highly, highly volatile and dangerous for Libya and its neighbors as well. What would you be advising we should do next? Well, I think at the end of the day, it seems to me that a political settlement is the most viable and effective uh, uh, means to proceed. And what I mean by a political settlement is that the opposition and Libya's neighbors and the African Union should engage the loyalists as opposed to the Qaddafi clan. Remember, Qaddafi would not have survived as long as he has without having a limited but potent base of support. You have thousands of loyalists, tribesmen and others who are supporting Qaddafi. Uh, These forces must be engaged. And so far, I think the greatest failure on the part of the opposition is to build the bridges to the loyalists and reassure them that there would be no massacres, no 
uh, vengeance and engage him in a serious and genuine, genuine political process. Christopher Lee, the US launched its first predator drone attacks this week, and there have also been claims of a tactical shift. Are we now trying to kill Colonel Gaddafi, do you think? Um, Not officially, uh, not officially, but it's interesting to remember that um, Mrs. Sarkozy, Cameron and uh, Obama have said they can't imagine that Libya could continue, um, as far as they're concerned, with Colonel Gaddafi in post. I mean, he's either got to go, or when you start to hit... Uh, the compound, for example, you're doing one of two things. You're either trying to target him uh, specifically or what you are trying to do is to knock out, for example, departments, ministries, uh, business centres, command and control units, etc., and so that the people that are actually running the place in the safety, the relative safety and the relative calm, say, of Tripoli, eventually start to think, this can't go on, you know. We're not on the front line at Benghazi, which doesn't concern us, but actually running the whole thing. And that's what you're trying to do. It's known in in command college warfare terms, you're trying to hit the people in the boxes. Professor Gerges, we're saying we're committed, but have we got what it takes to meet that promise, do you think? Uh, No, not at all. Uh, I think um, any uh, uh, expert would tell you that air power were unlikely to change the uh, configuration of forces you need tens of thousands of boots on the ground to change the situation. Azati is deeply uh, entrenched in uh, Libya, in the western parts and in some parts of the east as well. It will take commitments on the ground, and this is why I don't think there's a commitment on the part of the uh, uh, western led alliance and the opposition. It will take time uh, and training and skills and money and resources to change the capability of the opposition. That's why, as you said, it's really a stalemate in the short term and the medium term. We're talking about a year or more, two years. And this is, again, how long will the Western-led coalition be committed to Libya? Uh, Five months, a year, two, three? Uh, What will be the costs? And how will the situation on the ground in Libya change as well? Remember now, uh, some members of the international community are beginning to raise questions about basically the coalition's uh, uh, airstrikes. In particular, you have... Uh, Russia, you have China, you have the African Union. The more the war continues in Libya, the more voices, critical voices, will likely in the international community. This will likely complicate the coalition's uh, mandate in Libya and also complicate the situation on the ground, the operational situation on the ground. All right, Professor Georges, Christopher Lee, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come this week, the great Afghan escape. Just how did 500 dangerous prisoners get out of jail? This was the second major prison break in the same prison. The Afghan National Police doesn't seem to have come up to the mark once again. The West may be reluctant to take direct action over the continued violence in Syria, but the UK's anger has been made clear in a very British way. The Syrian ambassador is no longer invited to the royal wedding. Last week has seen a significant shift in tactics by President Assad's regime, using overwhelming force to try to put down pro-democracy demonstrations. Protesters say well over 100 people have been killed in the past week, but there's no agreed approach from the UN Security Council, though its Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon is leading condemnation of the violence. I condemn utterly the continuing violence against the peaceful demonstrators, most particularly the use of tanks, 
and live fire uh, that have killed and injured hundreds of uh, people. It goes without saying that Syrian authorities have an obligation to protect uh, civilians and respect international human rights. Uh, that includes the right to free expression and peaceful assembly. Christopher Lee is still with me, as is Professor Fawaz Jerzez from the London School of Economics. Uh, Fawaz Jerzez, lots of rhetoric but no action. Why are we so much more reluctant to intervene in Syria? Uh, well, Kate, you asked me about Libya. Um, I mean, Libya fails by comparison with Syria. I'm afraid the situation is much more complex and dangerous in Syria than it is uh, in Libya. Syria is one of the leading regional players. It exercises tremendous influence in Lebanon, neighboring Lebanon. It has one of the closest relationships with Iran. It borders uh, uh, Jordan, Turkey, and Israel. This is a state within one of the most difficult and dangerous neighborhoods uh, in the world. And the reality is it has a, a, a potent and robust uh, military and security apparatus. Unlike Libya and Yemen and other states, there is no daylight between the army and the security forces in Syria and the political leadership that is the Assad regime. The security forces will likely fight to the bitter end to protect not only the Assad regime but their own community, that is the Alawite, the, the, uh, the Alawite community, which is uh, a small uh, uh, Shiite. Uh, sect within Islam is part of the uh, Assad regimes. This is the base of the Assad regime. And that's why the international community is very reluctant to basically intervene uh, in Syria because of the uh, difficulties. And also, you don't want to really uh, uh, get Syria to have a closer and deeper relationship with Iran, which is a bigger and greater threat to the international community at this moment. So is President Assad simply uh, gambling on that reluctance of the international community and the fact that it has Iran's backing to do whatever he wants with impunity? Uh, Absolutely. In fact, uh, the Assad regime uh, obviously has decided to crush the opposition, to break the will of the protesters. He is using massive force. And I'm afraid, regardless of what happens, if he will survive, and he will most likely uh, survive, uh, the Syrian-Iranian relationship will become much warmer and closer because of the isolation that Syria will face in the international community. And that's why the Americans in particular are reluctant to basically uh, escalate uh, their actions against Syria. And that's why President Obama is trying to walk a fine line between condemnation of the use of massive force against the protesters and basically... uh, trying to keep the lines open to the leadership in Damascus. Uh, Christopher Lee, a military operation in Libya started with a civilian evacuation. Can you see something like that happening in Syria? No, i give you easy, easy reasons. Um, nobody would be able to get a United Nations resolution like 1973 they have in Libya. They wouldn't be able to get one for Syria. Second uh, reason is that they certainly would not have the support of at the Arab League. The foreign ministers are meeting, I think, probably end of next week, but they won't get support of that, which they have for Libya. The third reason is that simply the United States, the United Kingdom and France do not have the resources that they could do anything else other than tear up invitations to royal weddings or or something like that. They don't have any powerful uh, methods of actually doing this. On that note, Professor Georges, how do you see the situation unfolding in Syria? Well, I think, uh, I'm afraid, the odds are against the opposition. Um, um, And I think the Assad regime will likely prevail in the short term. But this is just the first round. That rupture has taken place in Syria and the Middle East. There will be uh, um, a second round and third round. Syria will likely be a much more volatile and unstable state in the next few months and next few years. Professor Fawaz Jerzez from the London School of Economics, thank you very much for your time today.
Well, this week has been a sad one for the naval community with the death of one of the most senior naval commanders during the Falklands War. Christopher, um, tell us a little about the man and what he's achieved. Uh, He was, I think, perhaps one of the best commanders-in-chief, chief chief of the naval staff, uh, Sea Lords, um, Henry Leach, um, certainly of my generation. Uh, I knew him quite well. Uh, He told a marvellous story about how uh, when the Argentines had invaded uh, Falklands, he came back from some conference or some visit. He was in full uniform, went over to the House of Commons where Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, was having a meeting with the rest of the Chiefs of Staff who were saying, oh no, we can't get the Falklands back. Stormed in there. It was actually the, the badge messengers pounced on him, trying to stop him going in. Went in there, she said to him, can we get them back, Admiral? He said, yes, and if we don't, every tin pot dictator will be against us. Um, but he was also, that was the hard side. of Let me give you a personal story. I was staying at the house one day down in Hampshire, and you know how things fall out of your pockets. Well, they do have a chap's <laughs> pockets anyway. And, and there was a, a pound, a pound coin fell out of my pocket. He sent it back, registered post. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's, that was Henry Leach. Uh, we'll miss him as, very much as a person. The Navy will miss his wise advice That's Sir Henry Leach, who died on Tuesday at the age of 87. This is SITREP on BFBS. It sounds like a remake of The Great Escape. Almost 500 prisoners, most of them Taliban fighters, disappear from the largest prison in southern Afghanistan. They got out through a tunnel dug over five months. Even Hamid Karzai's own spokesman admitted the escape is a disaster. The Taliban claims around 100 of the escapees are commanders. It could be a big boost for the insurgents' ability to mount a spring offensive. Samina Ahmed from the International Crisis Group says it's further evidence of the appalling state of Afghan security. This was the second major prison break in the same prison where Taliban commanders and foot soldiers by the hundreds are detained. The very least that could have been done between 2008, the first time there was this prison outbreak, and now is to make sure that security was tightened. The Afghan National Police doesn't seem to have come up to the mark once again. Well, our reporter, Charlotte Cross, joins me now from Camp Bastion. Uh, Charlotte, this is hugely embarrassing for Afghan officials, isn't it? Yes, I, I think it is. The Taliban claim the tunnel took five months to build and it was more than 300 metres long and dug from a house near the prison that was rented by so-called friends of the Taliban and it had to bypass security checkpoints and the main Kandahar to Kabul road. The escape lasted most of Sunday night and vehicles were waiting at the exit point to take the prisoners away. So it's hard to understand how the escape wasn't detected either beforehand or during, especially by the guards in the observation towers and there's also a police checkpoint which overlooks the rented house where the prisoners emerged, and they also failed to notice anything untoward happening. Afghan officials are now claiming it was an inside job and that the prison had effectively been taken over by the Taliban for quite some time, with four Taliban commanders holding keys to all the cells. The Afghan government has detained the director of the prison as well as seven other officials for neglecting their duty. It's also being reported that guards and police sold 
called uh, the Taliban prisoners' mobile phones, allowing them to communicate with their comrades for weeks or even months before they actually escaped. And not only that, but this is the second major escape from this prison in the last three years. In 2008, a suicide bomber blew open the gates and freed about 900 prisoners, many of those insurgents. Um, and they spent millions of pounds after that upgrading the prison. But these extra physical security measures obviously haven't been enough to prevent a jailbreak with the help of the guards themselves. And even Karzai's chief spokesman says the escape has exposed serious holes in the country's security. Indeed, and Charlotte, the obvious worry is that the prisoners will go straight to the front line of the Taliban's spring offensive. Well, it's, it's been reported that about 100 of those who escaped were Taliban commanders and Kandahar's acting police chief says he thinks the escape will have an impact on security in the city and in the wider province itself. He says the police are now working round the clock to arrest all those who escaped, but it's unclear whether enough uh, data, biometric data, was held on them all to make them easily identifiable. And the escape of so many hardened insurgent fighters is certainly a serious blow so close to the start of the summer fight months and it follows a big NATO and Afghan campaign to capture militants over the last year. A lot of that effort has been wasted. All right, Charlotte Cross in Afghanistan, thank you very much. The countdown to the royal weddings down to its final hours now. Already the crowds are gathering along the parade route in central London and it's thought hundreds of millions will be watching when Prince William marries Kate Middleton at Westminster Abbey. It's a big day too for more than a 1,000 service personnel who each have their own role to play in the ceremonial splendour surrounding the service, as Paul Osborne reports. <laughs> Every note's perfect, but then again, that's what rehearsals are for. And after all, it was very, very early in the morning. In fact, the full dress rehearsal for more than a 1,000 military personnel started before 5 a.m. on Wednesday. Time is running out to get everything perfect, and across the forces world, they know with hundreds of millions watching, they can't afford to get anything wrong. It's a big job for Queen's State Warrant Officer... Garrison Sergeant Major Billy Mott. I just make sure all the street liners are in the correct position, the Guard of Honour knows where they're going and they're in the correct position. Uh, the mounted elements know where they're to go and where their part is to play. And even the Royal Muse with the carriages, I'll just give them a few cues when they're required. I like to use the word mystique. In other words, I know I'm a big lad and it's hard to hide, but I'm, I'm not really there, if you know what I mean. So I can get about and just make sure people do things at the right time, like what we do for all the state occasions. For the bands, there have been endless hours of rehearsal. Thomas Oates is from the Scots Guards. It takes a good few hours, so we're expecting quite a lot of attention on a skit. <laughs> the best part of the job's doing uh, things like guarding and everything like that and doing us parades and stuff, but when it comes down to your actual kit, it takes quite a while to do, but it's worthwhile. The scale of the job means it can be a bit scary, but as Lieutenant Colonel Adam Crawley from the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment explains, it is also a huge honour. A bit of a mixture of emotions, really. There's a tinge of nervousness starting to creep in as we're getting closer to the day, but we know we're ready and we've been doing public duties for a while now. It's a real honour for us. I mean, timing has been very fortuitous for us, for us a battalion. The Princess of Wales' Royal, Bata uh, Royal Regiment and the actual affiliation with Diana, Princess of Wales, the first Colonel-in-Chief. I personally collected the colour from her in Canterbury in 1995. So for us, it is great that we are here as a ceremonial battalion at the right time. 
For 1st Battalion, the Irish Guards, it's a quick turnaround from a tour in Afghanistan to their role as the Queen's Escort. Regimental Taylor Lance Sergeant Matthew Elds is finding that after six months in Helmand, he's having to make a lot of adjustments. They do lose a lot of weight uh, when they're out there, and it takes them a while to, to get back to what they, you know, their body shape was. Some, some don't even go back, uh, and you know, we have to change their, their whole uniform. Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Geeker is the Guard's commanding officer. Being part of the Royal Wedding is a huge privilege um, and it's wonderful to be part of such a great national day. But also I think it's important to remember that we are dual-rolled soldiers. We do high-quality uh, ceremonial soldiering, but we also do high-quality operational soldiering, which we've just returned from. Um, we are Guardsmen, that is part of our role, and so in many senses this is something which we know about and we do the whole time. Well over a 1,000 military personnel each have their own role to play on the big day. And the man in charge is Major General William Cubitt. Everybody's really up for it and looking forward to it. I think it's important to sort of realise why. I mean, not only is Prince William and uh, Catherine a very popular couple, but also Prince William is a serving officer in the armed forces. Being a young couple, uh, our soldiers, sailors and airmen really identify with them. And there'll be some familiar faces for the prince and his new wife as they leave Westminster Abbey. Eight pathliners will open the doors of the newly married couple, chosen because they serve with Prince William on HMS Iron Duke, including Gavin Rees, who has some very specific memories of the royal recruit. I'd be the one that was giving him his press-ups for turning up late to circuit training. You'd think that he'd learn from the first time turning up late, but each time he did turn up, he wasn't late. An old green T-shirt that he had on with a pair of... uh, quite shocking Bermuda shorts with big flowers on them. An outfit the Prince will presumably not be wearing tomorrow. Paul Osborne reporting. Now, I've been keeping quiet about this until now, but contrary to our usual arrangements, Christopher Lee is not in the studio with me today. Instead, he's in the BBC's Royal Wedding Studio because tomorrow he's part of the team commentating on events. So, Christopher, a massive day for everyone. Got the, the suit military. on. Have you? Oh, well, at least we know what, what someone's wearing. Um, massive day for military personnel. Yes, it is. Uh, more than a thousand. And everyone, uh, you can actually say, this is not a toy sh- soldier. As we heard in that report, some of these guys just back from Afghanistan, some of them actually training even now to go to Afghanistan in 2013. So everyone is on the spot. The, uh, one anomaly of the whole thing, I noticed I've counted about six ships. They're, they're shipped uh, badge, you know, cap tallies, uh, which the Royal Navy say, you know, they'll be on from HMS so-and-so. They're all decommissioned. They're all mm. gone in the defence cut, which seems a, a, a bit of a shame, but we just simply haven't got enough men from, from enough ships to actually put, to line the, line the route. That, that point you made about no-one being a toy soldier there, how much does that add to the sense of occasion, do you think? I think it does. I, think it, I certainly think it does, and certainly think it does in London. Um, if you ever go to the Abbey at the time of Remembrance Sunday... It is a sea of red poppies. And people come, people who haven't planted those poppies, people who don't know, have any connections at all, they come and they see them and they pause. I've watched them. I've watched them praying over those poppies. And mm. I think that we have a greater awareness in this country of people certainly serving in Afghanistan. Don't forget, we were serving in Afghanistan now for longer than the whole of the Second World War. Indeed. Um, now, you were at the Wednesday pre-dawn dress rehearsal. What did you make of it? Um, there was... There there were some jolly good moments, uh, especially, like. <laughs> uh, especially musical, as uh, I think we heard earlier. Um, no, it was the it was the sense there because guys were in khaki, 
They were in battle dress. They were in fatigues doing this. They weren't in their sort of uh, best dress, etc. And there was this sort of contrast at four o'clock that started in the morning. You got this idea that this this ghostly crew coming down, <laughs> the horses, etc., including in the household cavalry, um, the the farrier. Do you know about the farrier Go in on, the household? Me. Well, very quickly in the in when we get the household cavalry coming down tomorrow. Look for the guy at the back. He's on a horse. He's the farrier, is he? He's the farrier. He's got an axe. And that axe uh, is because in times wars past, when when a horse went down, you had to cut off the hoof to send it back to the Ministry of Defence or the equivalent. No, no, because they say, you know, you've got to prove this horse is dead, otherwise I'm not going to replace it. Nothing much has changed. And the Strategic (laughs) Defence Review in Victorian times is about the same as it is now. I I thought you were going to say that he was there to put on the odd shoe if it fell off during this procession, but obviously not. not, (laughs) Um, Now, now, we heard something there uh, that Major General William Cubitt said. um, Service personnel identify closely with William and Kate because they're a young military family. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very true. It's not just the, the, the... I think the general public, and one gets the impression looking at opinion polls, the general public understand what he does. You know, he is not, again, a toy RAF man or whatever. To fly one of the aircraft that he does, also uh, Prince Harry, his brother in Apaches, you've got to be pretty, pretty clever. A lot of people, a lot of people, the majority of people, fail that helicopter course. So these are no dummies, just sort of turned up for the occasion. Closely guarded secrets, what she'll be wearing, but also what he'll be wearing. What's your take now so close to the actual wedding? The the politics of this has come down to the fact that he is supposed to be wearing, everybody thought he was wearing, uh, the uh, ceremonial dress of the Royal Air Force. Can he do the right thing, whatever he wears? I think so. I think if, if, if he took another tack on this, not wear the three service uniforms that he's served in, but what happens, he's been made an honorary colonel in the Irish Guards, just supposing he turned up with full bearskin and the Irish Guards uniform. That would solve the problem, wouldn't it? But let's wait and see. Indeed. And Christopher, you'll be back on BFBS Radio 2 tomorrow for coverage of the wedding, won't you? I shall be, I shall, I shall be there. I'm just off now uh, to get try and get even closer. I'm going to walk the course again. You pass security then, Christopher? I pass security and also <laughs> pass the through. spot where the, uh, the, the RAF band will be, uh, be playing, cozying up to the MOD. Would they be anywhere else? All right, great stuff. Uh, Well, you can hear BBC Radio 4's coverage of the Royal Wedding on BFBS Radio 2. It starts at 10 o'clock UK time on Friday morning. That's it for this week. As ever, thank you, Christopher, and to our other guests. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget, you can sign up for the weekly Sitrep podcast so you need never miss the programme again. Until next time, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.